Well, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we looked at the Jerusalem Council for two weeks before this one. First week, we looked at the process. How did they make a decision? We saw that that was through the gathering of the elders. Second week, we looked at the content of the decision. That was a reminder from Leviticus 17 and 18 that Christians living in Israel's house, that is us, Gentiles who have come in and been converted and are now part of God's true Israel, we have to abstain from all kinds of idolatry, from blood, and from sexual immorality. Those three things are off-limits for Christians. And then today we look at the aftermath, after the council, what happened. And Luke emphasizes that the church prospered in the aftermath of the council. In the big ways, the church was blessed. But the council did not solve every issue, as we will see. Acts 15, verse 30. When Judas and Silas were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. Now when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were delivered by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you strengthened the church through this Jerusalem council, that you filled your church with joy, and that you made it strong. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn the lessons about your kingdom that are here in this passage, and that you would help us to pay attention, to grow more like Jesus by what we hear about how he rules his people. We pray these things, Father, asking for your help and strength to focus, help me to speak, help us all to become more like our Savior as we see his glory in this text. In his name we ask it. Amen. Well, the council answered a major question. What's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do you have to become... A, Christ, a Jew to become a Christian? Well, that was the question. Do you have to be a Jew to be a Christian? And the answer was no. 
But Luke goes on to show us, of course, he has this feel-good, love and unity message in chapter 15, and he winds up the chapter with a massive fight. Just to remind us that love and unity on the big things doesn't solve everything. The fact that the church could agree on whether circumcision was necessary doesn't mean that they could agree on whether John Mark was a good missionary. And the fact that they could agree that circumcision wasn't necessary didn't mean that there was a ban on circumcision. The next scene, of course, is Paul circumcising Timothy. The council settled a major issue. It didn't settle every issue. Circumcision continues to be a live option when understood as a cultural phenomenon rather than a religious one. Disputes still happen in the church, even sharp and bitter disputes. In other words, a council is not a panacea. The kingdom of God is bigger than one council. A council can do a lot of good, but it can't do every good. So those are some of the points, the main points that Luke makes in this text. The first one, the biggest one, I think, is the one that occurs at the beginning, middle, and end of the passage. The church flourishes when a council makes the right decision. Beginning of the passage, verse 31. When they read it, they rejoiced. Middle of the passage, 41. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. End of the passage, 16.5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. The church flourishes when a council gets it right. This is why it's important to gather the elders to settle disputed issues. That's how the church settled this issue of circumcision. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? The answer is no. And when you deliver that message, the church rejoices. We can imagine a very practical reason why they would rejoice. All the men in the Antioch church said, I don't have to be circumcised. Okay. Phew. That's a tough sell. But the elders said, no, there's no need for circumcision. So they rejoiced over its encouraging message that you don't have to become a Jew, you just need to stay away from idolatry, blood, and fornication. If you do those things, you will do well. So do you want to see a more faithful church? Lots of conversions, growth, a strong church? One way to get there, Luke tells us, is to pray for the elders as they make a decision. And when the elders make good decisions, the church flourishes. The church is strengthened. The church is joyful. The church increases in number. A church with elders that gather and make poor decisions does the opposite. So pray for the gathering and decision-making of the elders. In our denomination, we gather as elders in the local church. We call that the session of elders. We gather regionally for Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. And we call that the presbytery of elders. And we gather nationally at general assembly level. And yeah, call that the general assembly. So each of these is a necessary ongoing component 
in the life of the church. When the elders make good decisions, the church flourishes. So don't say, how could the gathering of the elders be relevant to me? Say rather, the whole church flourishes when the elders gather and make wise decisions. That's Luke's point to us. So second, sometimes the church needs long messages. This verse 32 is not as popular. Judas and Silas were prophets and they exhorted the brethren with many words. Judas and Silas didn't come and read the letter, which we have the text of it, verses 23 through 29. It's about half of, half of a half page. They didn't read the letter and say, well, there you go. That settles it. They had to use a lot of words. You see, in that day and in this day, the issues that come before ecclesiastical councils are almost never simple issues. The issue was not, some bad guys were doing some bad things, but the good guys stood up and stopped the bad things, and now we have good things. So let's be glad. No, to understand what happened at the Jerusalem Council required significant mental effort. It required a lot of words. It required a long explanation. It required some investment of brain time. If the last time you had a thought in your head was high school algebra, the Christian faith is challenging you to grow beyond that. To be willing to put your brain in gear and chew through some tough issues. As we saw, it took us two sermons to get just kind of the basic outline, the gist of what the Jerusalem Council was doing. We didn't even try to dive into the complexities of what happened there. But Judas and Silas tried to explain the whole thing, and it took many words. This is a fundamental reality of the church, and especially of the decisions of ecclesiastical councils. They require effort to understand. And so, our mental laziness, as we just said, the church flourishes when councils make the right decision. Councils can't make the right decision if the elders are unwilling to put in the time to understand the issues. But, guess what? Elders are people too, and we elders often don't like putting the time to understand the issues. And there can be a lot of time involved in these things. Most of you have heard something about a recent case before our own General Assembly, teaching elder Greg Johnson of Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. That case took three years to be processed. The record of the case, the documents submitted by both sides, ran to more than 600 pages. And the decision was 40 pages. The issues require time and effort to understand. I showed the decision, all 40 pages of it, to an elder in our denomination, and he said, you would have to pay me $100 an hour to read this. 
Now that's understandable. But Judas and Silas, Luke is telling us, these tough issues are a par for the course. It's not going to be a few words. The executive summary isn't going to allow elders to gather and make a good decision that allows the church to flourish. Well, it's a call, yes, to elders to put in their time and understand, but Judas and Silas didn't gather the elders in Antioch and say, we're going to spell this out for you. They told the whole church. They exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. Most of us think of it the opposite way. The more words you throw at me, the weaker I get. By about the third hour of words, I'm a little jelly on the floor. Please stop. My brain shut off two hours ago. Judas and Silas didn't think that way. Emissaries of the Jerusalem Council handpicked as leading men among the brethren, according to verse 22. These guys said, it's imperative that you understand what just happened. Put your grain in Put your brain in gear. Put it in four-wheel drive low. You're going to be crawling over some tough rocks. But you need to understand what just happened. So this is a call to us to be willing to put our brain in gear. Sometimes the church needs long messages. Church doesn't always need long messages. We saw, for instance... In chapter 14, that uh, Paul and Barnabas encouraged the brothers and just said, continue in the faith. Short message. But there's also a place for a long message. So what happens next? Well, Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch. They continue to minister there and then they head off Paul says, let's go back and revisit all the churches we planted before the Jerusalem council. Barnabas says, good idea. I've got my ministry partner here, my nephew, John Mark. Let's go. And then, I love how Luke puts it, verse 39, then there arose a paroxysm. That's what the Greek says. Knowing Paul... We can imagine where the paroxysm came from. Paul says, we will not take Mark. That's final. And Barnabas says, no, we will take Mark. And then pretty soon, these two godly men are having a knockdown drag out where they finally decide we can't even work together anymore. This team is done. Bands break up, teams break up. Paul and Barnabas, successful missionary team, shatters. And they go their separate ways. Barnabas goes off to Cyprus, his home territory. And Paul goes to Cilicia, his home territory. So People have gone to town on this incident. Barnabas was wrong. Paul was wrong. Mark was wrong. 
somebody was wrong. Don't be like the one who was wrong. Luke doesn't comment on any of that stuff. What is Luke saying? He's saying councils can get along and settle the decisions of the church. The elders will meet and make a decision. But also sometimes the elders will meet and decide that this isn't working. If anything, we could take this text as the basis for denominations. You minister over there, I'll minister here. I don't doubt your good faith. I don't doubt your ability to minister. We used to work together. But if you're going to minister with him, we're not working together anymore. No one would call this a good thing that they fight so hard that they have to break up. (coughs) But at the same time, God brings good out of it. He doubles the number of missionary teams being sent from Antioch. There is unity. The church can agree on circumcision. The church can't agree on whether Mark is a good missionary. And those of us who have been in the church for a long time understand that nothing has changed. That there is still lots of people, lots of arguments, lots of disagreements, particularly over that most sensitive matter on any board's docket, personnel issues. So they split up. Then Paul comes to Derby and Lystra, places where he was stoned the last time he visited. This time he doesn't get stoned. He finds a brother named Timothy, who's uh, in the world of the New Testament probably considered to be fully Jewish. Not totally sure There's conflicting evidence, of course, in modern Judaism. It's more or less decided in most sects of Judaism that Jewishness passes through the mother. If your mother is Jewish, you're a Jew. So you take that to Timothy and say, well, obviously he's Jewish. But in the first century, there were at least some places that said it passes through the father. So if your father is Greek, you're a Greek. There were other Jewish sects at this time that said, no, it's the mother. If the mother is Jewish... You're Jewish. So this text, I think, seems to imply that the locals thought of Timothy as a Greek. I'm sorry, as a Jew, because even though Paul says, Luke says, he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, that sentence gives commentators fits. What does that mean? They knew that his mother was Jewish, so why does Luke say they knew his father was Greek? The upshot of it appears to be that he's recognizably Jewish in some sense, some important sense, and so you don't have to be a bad Jew to be a good Christian. Circumcision isn't necessary for salvation, nor is it an issue to be circumcised, and that's why Paul personally goes and circumcises Timothy. The same Paul who writes in the letter to the Galatians, I tell you, if you get circumcised, you're leaving Christ behind. How can Paul say both of those things? Well, the answer is he's thinking about circumcision in two different senses. In a religious sense, if it's something you're doing to please God, you're failing. Circumcision does not please God. Circumcision is no longer a sacrament of God's grace. It is not 
a conduit of grace in any way. It is simply a cultural practice. If you come from a family of Jewish origin that believes in circumcising, go right ahead, says Paul. Culturally speaking, there's nothing wrong with that. And Paul wouldn't fuss with anybody who wanted to put on a yarmulkim or anybody who wanted to wear the traditional dress of any of their ancestors, whatever that traditional dress might be. But he does, at the same time, insist that circumcision is not required for salvation. And that the minute you say the customs of your ancestors are part of the gospel, are required to be right with God, you've missed the point. So in the first century, if you say, I have to get circumcised in order to be saved, you're wrong. In the 19th century, if you say, you must put on a white shirt and a necktie in order to be saved, you're wrong. And so on. In the 21st century, if you say, you must use this Bible app and get on the Bible reading plan with me, then we can be in competition with each other. In order for you to be saved, you're wrong. These cultural practices are fine. So long as they're understood correctly. Paul didn't circumcise Timothy so that Timothy would be closer to God. Paul circumcised Timothy so that Timothy could do mission work among Jewish people who wouldn't say, wait, let me get this straight. You're Jewish. Yeah, I'm Jewish. And you, you don't care about being Jewish because you're not circumcised. Well, yeah, that's right. Timothy didn't want to be in a position to say that he didn't care about what the Bible taught. So Paul circumcises him. Levitical holidays, kosher laws, those things fall under this category. If you want to celebrate the Day of Atonement, that's great. If you think celebrating the Day of Atonement gets you closer to God than someone who doesn't celebrate the Day of Atonement, you've missed it. If you want to abstain from pork and shrimp and lobster, go ahead, right? The rest of us will eat those things. But if you think that your abstinence gets you closer to God, you've missed it. So that's why all of chapter 15 essentially is devoted to saying you don't have to be circumcised. And then at the beginning of chapter 16, Timothy gets circumcised. Acts 15 is not a ban on circumcision or on Jewish cultural practices as such. It's simply a statement that those things are beside the point. They are unnecessary for the Christian. And any time we get hung up on our own culture and insist that in order to be a good Christian, somebody has to adopt our cultural traits and practices, we've missed it. We can go tell our African brothers and sisters, we meet in an air-conditioned building. You meet under the tree. Your church won't be a real church until it too has an air-conditioned building. And they should look at us and just shake their heads and say, you poor Americans. You don't get it. You just don't get it. 
air-conditioned building doesn't make the church. Your cultural practice doesn't determine the validity of the message. So Timothy gets circumcised. Finally, Acts 16.4, if there is a proof text for Presbyterianism, it is this. As Paul and Timothy and Silas went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. What does this verse tell us? It tells us that the Baptists are wrong. Baptists and others of a congregational polity say each individual church makes the decisions for that church. There is no place for a regional, a national, an international gathering of church leaders to make decisions that are binding on the local church. But Acts 16.4 comes along and begs to differ. We already saw in chapter 15 that the issue of circumcision was a Syrian issue. It started in Syrian Antioch. Syrian Antioch took it to Jerusalem to be settled. Jerusalem settled it. Now Paul, Silas, and Timothy go up into Asia and there they deliver the decrees of the Jerusalem council to these churches to keep. It says that the decrees of the council in which they had not participated, to which they had not sent representatives, were something that they were on the hook, morally obligated to obey. From this verse has been built most most church governments in the world, either on the Presbyterian or Episcopalian lines. Because the verse says clearly that churches in a region that was a totally different region that hadn't participated in the council nonetheless are subject to the decision of the council. This council rules them just as much as the Jerusalem church and the Syrian Antioch church. Hence, Presbyterian objection to congregational polity of any stripe. The congregation is not the ultimate authority in the church. The elders are, and the elders answer. The elders are picked by the congregation, but the congregation is not the elders' constituents. The elders do not answer to the congregation. They answer to the Lord. And so it's simultaneous top-down, bottom-up. The Lord tells the congregation who to pick to be their elders. The congregation has the right to choose their own elders and pastor. But those elders are responsible directly to God. Our polity does have a place for a recall election. And you can circulate signatures, and if you get a certain proportion of the church, you can bring it to a vote and cast out a particular elder or your pastor. And there's many steps between what's in the Word and what's in the Book of Church Order for obvious reasons. But anyway, the regional governing body or the national governing body has the right to make decisions that bind all the churches. At least, so thought Paul, so thought Silas, 
so thought Timothy, and so thinks Luke. And when the churches submit to this, when they pay attention to the decrees of the Jerusalem Council, they're strengthened and they increase. So pray for councils and synods. Pray for them to judge wisely. Pray for your elders to take the time to understand the issues and make a godly decision. Councils can't solve every issue. Luke makes that clear. You can't just get all the elders together and they all say, Paul, come off it. Go ahead and bring Mark with you. The amount of time it would take to do that would be longer than the amount of time it takes Paul, Silas, and Timothy to go back on their whole missionary journey. But when councils get it right, they're a blessing to God's people. They strengthen the church. They help the church grow. So praise the Lord that He rules His church through councils. And pray for your elders. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what's here. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation, but it is not wrong as a cultural practice. We thank You for the strength and joy that the decision of the Jerusalem Council brought to Your church. We thank You, Father, for the reality that we are under the protection of a regional gathering and a national gathering of elders that help us be strengthened and help us be joyful and help us grow. Father, we ask that you would give us the grace to submit to your rule as expressed through the elders of your church. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.